1: Hillary Clinton finally responds to allegations from the Durham investigation.
2: We know that Trump Tower and President Trump's other residents was being closely monitored by the Clinton campaign.
1: BLM posts bail for the alleged shooter Quintez Brown. We need yeah. common sense gun reform. What impact will the Remington settlement have on law-abiding gun owners?
3: Their goals for in these lawsuits are really hard like to try and stop companies from even making the kind of guns that they don't like. This
1: is the Daybreak Insider Podcast, your first look at today's top stories for February 17th. I'm Mike Scott. Taking a look at the ongoing crisis in Ukraine. NATO defense ministers are examining new ways to bolster the defenses of member countries on the organization's eastern flank, closest to Russia. Secretary-General Jens Stoltenberg says NATO sees no sign Russia is pulling back troops near Ukraine.
4: We have uh, heard the signs from Moscow about uh, readiness to continue diplomatic uh, efforts. But so far, uh, we have not uh, seen any de-escalation on the ground. On the contrary, uh, it appears that Russia continues the military buildup.
1: The secretary general says talks
4: on easing Ukraine tensions need to continue. We will uh, continue to um, convey very clear message to Russia that uh, we are ready to sit down and uh, and discuss with them, uh, but at the same time, we are prepared for the worst.
1: The NATO Secretary General reiterates there will be
4: a high cost if Russia attacks Ukraine. If uh, Russia once again invades Ukraine, uh, they will pay a high price, and we will continue to expose uh, Russia's uh, plans and actions uh, to make it harder for them uh, to conduct conduct aggressive actions against the Ukraine.
1: Breaking her silence. Hillary Clinton, the former first lady and two-time Democrat presidential candidate, finally responded to last week's court filing by special counsel John Durham, alleging that her 2016 presidential campaign paid for computer research to link then-candidate Donald Trump to Russia. Taking to Twitter, she stated, Trump and Fox are desperately spinning up a fake scandal to distract from his real ones. So it's a day that ends in why the more his misdeeds are exposed, the more they lie, end quote. Katie Pavlich, editor at Town Hall and contributor to Fox News, joined the Salem Radio Network sharing her thoughts on the Durham report.
2: John Durham, uh, to many people's uh, you know, d- frustration, has been taking a very long time to get through this special counsel investigation. Uh, and I think we should remember that it... Thanks to Attorney General Bill Barr, he is a special counsel, making it more difficult for the Biden administration to uh, get rid of him once they came into office.
1: And why does Katie think Durham is taking so long with his report?
2: He's just being very methodical about going through the FBI's investigation of uh, the Trump campaign, looking into very detailed specifics about uh, you know, servers and who was doing what, and really honing in on what the Clinton campaign was doing.
1: Pavlich explains what she thinks Durham is finding.
2: I think he's finding that a lot of what was said about President Trump and the details of what the lawyers were doing and the attorneys uh, was was pretty um, sketchy to say the least and in a lot of ways may have broken the law.
1: And what does the Durham report tell us so far?
2: We now know that uh, the executive office of the president was was being monitored or looked at we know that trump tower and president trump's other residents was being closely monitored by the clinton campaign and of course this narrative about uh, the russia collusion came from the very same people
1: how will this impact the biden administration
2: how is this relevant to the current times and joe biden well the national security advisor for president uh joe biden just happens to be someone who came up with this whole narrative About Russia, And, uh, of course, when he's dealing with issues like Russia and Ukraine, uh, you have to ask questions about, you know, what we can trust when he is speaking. Looking
1: forward, how does Katie feel this will play out?
2: My bet would be that he doesn't say much, that they fight back. The Clinton campaign is already saying that they're going to fight back against these allegations, dragging this thing out even further. And, uh, you know, I doubt there will be much accountability.
1: It's being called a bloodbath. San Francisco residents recalled three members of the city's school board for what critics are calling misplaced priorities and putting progressive politics over the needs of children during a pandemic. San Francisco Mayor London Breed says the school board recall campaign was not about politics but frustrated parents who wanted solutions.
5: You know, it wasn't about progressive or liberal. And I think that it minimizes the hard work that so many people did to get this on the ballot and to get it passed by trying to attribute it to that.
1: Breed says that the vote to recall three school board members sends a clear message about fundamentals.
5: They want to focus to be on the fundamental responsibility of the school district and that is to make sure that we educate our children. Education and the system around education has to be at the forefront of everything that we do.
1: Breed went on to say that parents have been telling her about how the pandemic has hurt their children and what they want school board members to concentrate on.
5: The learning loss, the mental health challenges, that is, has to be our focus.
1: On Tuesday, Remington Arms agreed to pay $73 million to the families of those killed in the Sandy Hook Elementary School Massacre, marking the first time a gunmaker has agreed to a major settlement over a mass shooting in the United States. Stephen Gutowski, founder of The Reload, joins the Daybreak Insider podcast to discuss the case and what it will mean for gun manufacturers and gun owners moving forward. Who exactly will be paying out the $73 million?
3: Remington went out of business, right? It went bankrupt. And so what this settlement is between the old Remington company that's now defunct. You know, they sold off all their operations to other companies. And so it's basically the insurance companies where the old Remington company have agreed to pay out this money. Was
1: it Connecticut, federal, or bankruptcy law that made Remington vulnerable to
3: this settlement? It was mainly Connecticut law that made this case possible, uh, because, uh, given the way that federal liability protections work for the gun industry. There's a provision in there that says you can't violate state law. And so the point is, in this case argued that Remington and its subsidiary violated the state's advertising laws in the way that it was advertising its gun.
1: Will enterprising lawyers now find grounds to file civil lawsuits whenever there's a crime involving a gun?
3: Uh, Most likely you'll see an uptick in these sorts of cases. This isn't really a new tactic from the gun control side of things. You've seen these sorts of cases for the past 30 years, really. That's why there is a federal liability protection law for the firearms industry. It's just now they've started to work out a new strategy for circumventing that law, uh, which this settlement is the first really big win in that front for them.
1: So what could be the impact on legal and reasonable gun owners?
3: Not clear exactly what the ultimate impact of this settlement is going to be, but likely it'll cause insurance rates for gun manufacturers to increase, and and you'll also see an uptick in these these sorts of lawsuits that go after manufacturers and dealers in an attempt to sue them into changing what kind of products they sell and the different policies on the corporate end of the gun side, of, uh, you know, the gun dealing system in America.
1: And will we see a legal impact on
3: other gun manufacturers? You could certainly argue that this lawsuit was part of the reason that Remington, this very old American company, went bankrupt in the first place. Um, but at the same time, it's, a, it's an out-of-court settlement, so it doesn't have necessarily a legal, doesn't set a new legal precedent um, in court. But I think for practical purposes, it's going to lead to a lot more of these kind of lawsuits and And their goals for the, in these lawsuits are really are. they're like trying and stop companies from even making the kind of guns that they don't like.
1: But there could be a large business impact on gun manufacturers as well.
3: Like I said this case, this settlement is a big deal. It's the first time you've seen a major payout from the remnants of a defunct gun company to people trying to hold them accountable for a crime committed with their product that they didn't have any direct involvement with. And if that trend continues, uh, you could see a very significant effect on the gun industry's ability to operate at all.
1: How will gun control advocates
3: use these lawsuits? These lawsuits are designed to try and make the gun companies implement restrictions that gun control advocates want by, you know, force of legal suits. And so the the ultimate outcome they're hoping for are things like forcing companies not to make and sell AR-15s to the public anymore. That was one of the stated goals in this case.
1: Looking forward, are there any court cases the average law-abiding gun owners should keep an eye on? Well,
3: I think the Supreme Court case out of New York that challenges the state's restrictive gun carry law is going to be decided this year. And that could have some sweeping implications for really about 25% of the country that live under those sort of restrictive gun carry laws. And so you might see uh, this this would be a positive development for a lot of gun rights advocates and gun owners. It might be easier for them to actually obtain a permit to carry a gun in the near future. Our
1: thanks to Stephen Gutowski. To read more from Stephen, visit thereload.com or follow him on Twitter at Stephen Gutowski. Out on bail, Quintez Brown has been bailed out after allegedly trying to shoot Louisville mayoral candidate Craig Greenberg on Monday. WHAS 11 news reporter Rachel Droz says she spoke with the BLM Louisville chapter who said they were in the process of getting a cashier's check to post Brown's $100,000 bail. The money used to bail Brown out came from the Louisville Community Bail Fund. Brown who is said to support gun control and BLM, has been charged with one count of attempted murder and four counts of wanton endangerment. In 2018, Brown appeared on a segment of MSNBC at a March for Our Lives rally. We
2: are here and we want we want common sense gun reform. And if you're not going to give us that, then we're going to get everyone out here to vote and we're going to vote you out of office. So if you want to keep your job, then, you know, give us what we not what we want, but what we need, what humans need. We need common sense gun reform. Get rid of assault rifles. Come on. More polling woes.
1: A civics poll just released. It's more data that suggests the Biden White House is in deep trouble. The party in power could be looking at a beatdown of historic proportions later this year. Biden is hitting a floor in the mid-30s, which is blowout territory. Among independents who swing battleground elections, fully two-thirds disapprove, while less than one in four approve of Biden's performance. The Hills editor-in-chief Bob Cusack weighed in on Biden's latest numbers. The president is going to be addressing Congress in his first State of the Union on March 1st, and he's not going to be able to spike the ball that much. Cusack fills us in on what insider Democrats think of the latest polling numbers.
0: And these numbers, they are are frustrating and exasperating Democrats who are up uh, for re-election in November.
1: Gas and groceries aren't the only thing that inflation is hitting. Rent is on the rise, and it may hurt working-class Americans the most. Rents are spiking in most places around the country, wiping out any wage gains for working-class Americans, but hitting fixed-income renters the hardest. Austin, Texas, tenant Shadow Lemaire is astonished by the rent increase she sees.
2: That's a $600 increase a month. That's crazy.
1: According to a report by NBC News, Rent hikes have gone up thirty percent in the past year in Austin and will go up another ten percent in the next year, forcing many to move.
2: Our rent is based on supply and demand, and that 's always the answer when we talk to them it 's being forced and, and we 're not prepared you know we 're not prepared to move right now it 's just a shame
1: redfin 's chief economist Daryl Fairweather explains why demand for rental properties is so high.
2: During the pandemic, people really went out and bought a lot of homes. They left the cities, moved to the suburbs and rural areas, and we saw home prices shoot up. More recently, people have been returning to cities, so home prices are up pretty much across the board. Low mortgage rates contributed to that. And now, with the return to cities and also the end of the eviction moratorium, there has been a lot of demand for rents.
1: Fairweather says there are things the government can do To help out renters
2: in the short term the government can look into providing rent relief so that it's more affordable and people can afford both their rent and things like groceries and gas and all that in the short run but the long-run problem is really the supply of housing
1: the San Francisco Federal Reserve sees rent inflation remaining high for the next two years as if your grocery bill wasn't high enough You should get ready for more financial pain caused by inflation. Daybreak Insider's Ken Lorman explains.
0: All over America, farmers are paying much higher prices for basics like animal feed, seed for crops, fertilizer, and seasonal laborers to help harvest crops. As a result, all those higher farm costs are likely to help push grocery prices even higher for the rest of the year. It's all made more complicated by ongoing issues in America's supply chain. Ken Lorman reporting.
1: And finally, P.J. O'Rourke, the author and satirist, who refashioned the irreverence and gonzo journalism of the 1960s counterculture into a distinctive brand of conservative and libertarian commentary,
0: has died. We've got two political parties in this country. Um, we've got the Democrats. They're the party of government activism, the party that says the government can make you richer, smarter, taller, take a dozen strokes off your golf game, you know. And there are the Republicans. They're the party that says government doesn't work, and then they get elected and prove it. His career extended from
1: serving as editor-in-chief of National Lampoon to a brief stint on 60 Minutes, in which he represented the conservative tank on point-counterpoint. O'Rourke relished the idea of satirizing people in power. The
0: complete freedom from ever worrying about offending anybody, I think that's probably the nicest thing about the National Lampoon, because if it ever crept into your mind that this might offend somebody, the natural and immediate response as a trained lampooner was, yes,
1: <laughs> it's a fabulous idea. His key to journalistic success, stay away from people in power because they lie. A highly placed government official did not get to be in a position of power and importance by being stupid enough to tell the truth to the newspaper reporters. PJ O'Rourke was 74.